Hello, and welcome to Fireside with a VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and we're lucky today to have Jack Leaney join us. Real fast, I think I met Jack, I think I met you the first time when you were head of U.S. investing for Telefonica Ventures. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. Going back a couple of years, and Jack impressed me because he's not just joining a 40-year-old VC fund right out of MBA and and continuing to burn the hedge fund money or pension fund and endowment money that somebody else raised. But he's a fundpreneur, meaning he's an entrepreneur that started his own VC fund, 7GC. And these guys are up and running. And I think they're almost ready to be looking to do fun too, lucky enough to have had some early exits. So Jack, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to catch up. So, Jack, why don't you give us a quick background? Maybe I'd like to talk a little bit about the Telefonica background and maybe dive into some corporate venture capital stuff, because having been there as long as you were and interacted with a lot of others, I'm sure you've got a lot of ideas of how they could be doing things better or differently or what they do that, that, that they're getting right. Um, I then want to get into the 7GC story. And you and I have been talking a lot off of this about SPACs. And so I think a lot of people want to understand what a SPAC is and how they work and do they make sense and how do they work? So maybe we can dive into these topics, but so kick us off, Jack, and tell us a little bit about um, your, you know, when did you start with Telefonic Adventures and uh, how, from when to when were you doing that? Sure, sure. So I was at, uh, I was running Telefonica's US portfolio from, I believe it was, 2011 through 2016 altogether. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was just about five years all told. And I had, uh, I had started with more of a traditional kind of corporate finance background. I was at, at Morgan Stanley in New York and then, and then Menlo Park worked at another, you know, uh, firm on Sand Hill road, but then entered corporate venture kind of by happenstance. And, and you've um, done, which, you which done a bunch of IPOs though, right? Like, I think you were like in Pandora and LinkedIn or am I getting that wrong? Weren't you well, on a whole so, bunch of like venture backed yeah. deals that exited? Yeah. So when I, when I was at Morgan Stanley, it was kind of uh, before, during, and right after the last financial crisis. So we had a front row seat to, you know, capital markets opening back up and basically this huge wave of venture backed companies all hitting the markets at the same time. So when I was there, uh, yeah, Tesla, Pandora, LinkedIn, Ancestry.com. Uh, you know, it was the whole cavalcade of, of a really Sand Hill Road backed firms all hit the market at the same time, uh, which which was pretty interesting because it's so, somewhat similar to what's going on today, but in, in a very different flavor. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I went through an IPO myself in like the dot com craze. And I remember I couldn't believe these investment bankers wanted to allow themselves to get liquid instantly on a company that I started and lock me up for <laughs> 18 months after the listing, you know, what was the, what was the average lockup? Cause that was kind of second time around when you were listing those guys. And I know John Kraft really well. And he's told me a bit about the inside of, he failed to meet payroll 22 times at Pandora, by the way, before you guys listed them. <laughs> I mean, so it's like a real grit story, but what, what were the lockups yeah, it, for founders when you were IPOing those guys? I mean, in, in general, for, for founders and inside shareholders, it's more or less 12 months. Um, okay. And, you know, the interesting thing is that actually, as a legal construct, is, is negotiated 
um, and that there's no real legal reason or SEC reason why that has to be the case. It's more market standard um, and something public market investors expect and not not to jump the gun, but that uh, that's kind of one of the interesting features of the SPAC. Um, The SPAC lockup can be shorter if the stock performs. So you can have sort of vesting thresholds for lockup as well, which is, but, but in a traditional IPO, it's, it's, it's just a legal clause that really comes into part of the prospectus. I mean, the, I, I spent, I was, I was a way more of an asshole back then than I am now, you know, in my kind of late twenties, early thirties, thinking I was worth $500 million with my own startup. But these lawyers were sitting down with me with Morgan Stanley the, the investment bank and Morgan Stanley and Dean Witter private equity put 50 million in right before the IPO to be the top of the liquidation stack, like no Chinese wall there. But uh-huh. they told me, Andrew, if you're seen as the founder to be divesting shortly after the IPO, everyone assumes, you know, more than, than the outsiders on the street. Like you've got the insider information that would be a bad signal. Therefore we want you to stay in for 18 months so we can go upgrade our house in the Hamptons and all that. And I thought it was just very offensive. And 18 months turned out to be a very long time for me in the dot-com crash. You know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Um, this, this gentleman who just stepped down from Nikola basically took all his chips off the table uh, quite, quite visibly and quite famously a few months ago. So I, I don't know. Look, I think there's, there's logic to these constructs. And... Um, you know, if you're an agent, you're always going to figure out a way for yourself to get paid first. And if you're a principal, whether it's an investor, founder, late shareholder, um, and it's, uh, you know, these things always have to be navigated. But I don't know. Look, I think the, the concept of vested lockups, to me, makes a lot of sense. Because stocks are, by nature, should be pretty turbulent in the first six months, for whether it's positive or negative. Yeah. Well, you know, we didn't have, I mean, by the way, Mark Andreessen was famous at the time when he and Jim Clark listed Netscape. His, Mm -hmm. apparently it was Mark Andreessen's father in Ohio or Indiana that said, I really, you've got to sell something right now and secure this family. And he sold like a big chunk of his Netscape holdings and everyone was against it. I remember personally applauding it when he did, but um, I want to get into SPACs first, but you're now playing in the secondary market with 7GC. So the there was no secondaries before. And sometimes you even get hit with these tax bills with options and warrants and stuff. Have you seen, have you seen more people selling on the secondary market right going into an IPO or hang in there for the entire IPO process and the lockup, even if it's 12 months? Um, that's an interesting question. And, and, you know, the first thing that came into my head when, when everything went, um, went upside down in March was this is going to be a great opportunity for secondaries. And uh, I had thought there would be way more dislocation and, and the primary markets wouldn't hold up as much. And, you know, lo and behold, March was an aberration and we're, you know, back in a, the, the bull market like it never even happened. Yeah. Um, but look, I have, a, I have a fundamental view that whether it's in, in LP stakes, direct stakes, that the concept of secondaries in venture capital is just completely broken. It's absolutely broken where, um, you know, the basic requirements for having some sort of a functioning market outside of volume and interest, you know, buyers and sellers is there has to be um, transparency and there has to be full access to information. And, you know, at, at series D 
share with a ton of pref and different terms on it is not the same as employee common that can only be transferred once. And Black Scholes isn't going to price that. And, right. you know, these are very nuanced situations. And look, if it's Facebook six months before it goes public, if it's Uber 12 months before the valuation is stayed flat, sure, um, blocks of this stuff can move around. You can organize tenders, employees can do stuff like that. But like outside of those minute scenarios and also outside of those minute scenarios where the value is only appreciating so the company doesn't hate it conceptually, um, this doesn't make sense. And, and all of these uh, marketplaces or brokerages that have popped up to facilitate it, I think is like the Wild West. And for that reason, uh, you know, sometimes we're a buyer. <laughs> if, um, okay. I think like the way we look at it is, you know, our, can, I just, our core... can I just step in, Jack, for our listeners? So we're talking about secondaries. And so what that means is that if you're a founder or an investor, the two kind of definitive liquidity events for the company are a mergers and acquisition, M&A, sale of a company, where you're selling or merging and getting stock in something else or cash. And then the other one is an IPO and you survive a lockup and now you're selling shares on the open stock exchange. Secondaries is trading of shares on the secondary market where company is still private and either founder, early investor, even last in, in investor decides to sell some of their shares at a gain or a loss to another buyer. So I just want to make sure people know what we're talking. We got into that kind of fast with some jargon. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, I, I think the only thing I was going to elaborate on is, you know, most, um, most firms or most funds have uh, a relatively uh, straightforward investment criteria, investment thesis. And that usually means, you know, if you're early stage or you're late stage or, or whatever it might be certain things. And, and um, you know, for, for us, we kind of, look at it a bit differently or, or maybe more even the way a hedge fund might kind of look up and down the cap table. Uh, I'm, I'm asset centric. You know, we're, we're looking for the best mid-stage growth assets where we think there's at least three, if not five X with kind of nearer term liquidity, nearer term in, in context of venture. So not 10 years, maybe three, four, five years. Okay. Um, and, and to that end, whether, you know, what we, most of what we do in the portfolio is, you know, direct primary growth rounds, working alongside other big investors, working directly with management teams. Um, but, but, you know, on the contrary, very open to secondaries. If we see a big pricing dislocation and a great asset we like, um, very open to buying potentially a, a busted LP stake if there's a big concentration in the landmark asset. Um, starting to look at things really differently on the late stage and on, you know, the, the SPAC topic and, and more to kind of think about there. But I, I've always thought um, there's not a lot of creativity in venture capital as an asset class where people, in, in, in the fact that people kind of stick to their knitting and do, you know, if you're a Series A, guy or gal, you know, that's what you do. And that's where you play. And you sort of stay within that and, and kind of focus on that universe. And we kind of look at it the other way around, sort of unbundle the products and just look at asset quality. And is there uh, hopefully an ARB you can get from, from kind of depackaging some of that process? I think the secondary market evolved quite a bit. I even spent uh, a couple of years where I had to even get under FINRA seven and 63 and 79 where i was mm -hmm. brokering secondaries and i loved it at the beginning and i hated it by the end where um i think you're well positioned to be able to be a primary investor that brings your european lp base which we can talk about later to add value but when it's a non-value added buyer they end up uh you've got a right of first refusal and at first 
to your point, VCs are like, oh, I'm a series A, series B gal. I don't do secondaries. I don't even believe in it. And so they weren't exercising their preferred shareholder rights of having a ROFR, a right of first refusal. Then they started waking up to that. We can increase our ownership target percentages of these companies and we'll discount common to preferred if there's a big liquidation stack above it and where they are in the waterfall and where the risk is of getting out. But we started seeing somebody like Industry Ventures would come in and say, we want to buy a big secondary of one of the founders shares or early or an early fund that wants to sell 20% at a huge gain. Um, and then it goes around to the preferred shareholders and they have 45, it used to be 90 days to exercise their right, the first refusal or waive it. And they started doing SPVs, like special purpose vehicles to their LPs saying, mm-hmm. do you want to match Hans? And so Hans at industry is like a stock, like, you know, he's just setting the price. You know, he's the horse setting the price for the insiders to give it to their LPs with really light economics and what they're taking or even vicious economics. The other thing I'll say, and let's move on maybe is I've seen some crazy structuring of secondaries where someone says, look, I know this Palantir is going up every six months by this much. And this is actually a true story from Palantir. This guy, I won't say his name, but he's building a huge house in uh, Park City, Utah. And he needed to pay a builder (laughs) only so much to keep them building this monstrosity for the next six months. And he knows six months later, the stock will be up this much because he's on the inside. He doesn't want to sell more than he needs to pay the builder. And literally uh, was saying, was cutting to deals that says, I'll sell at this valuation, which is higher than the valuation should be, which signals to the market that Palantir's valued at X when it's not. But if the buyer makes a 2X, he's going to give 80% back to the seller and get 20% of the upside after getting his 2X. So you can yep. do anything with... Um, price it below or above where it should be. And then say, after I make this kind of return hurdle, we'll split upside in any way could be negotiated. So talk about creative oh, adventure. It was like too much. <laughs> but that, that, that name specifically, if I'm not mistaken, is pretty nuanced too, where you can trade the stock twice only. So it doesn't have sort of full transferability there's like it it transferred once and it transferred twice and then the 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 last person holding the ball was kind of stuck from the way i remember it so you had basically like class a shares and class b shares and different price for that given you know perceived liquidity um so yeah it's i mean look i think it all goes back to the point is even if there is volume even if there is a good amount of buyers and sellers which i think in venture-backed companies is extremely rare. You know, there's yeah. five companies that matter in a, given, in a given moment where there'll be institutional volume. You know, then the next thing that, that's crucial is just this transparency, access to information and kind of governance. And all, none of these securities are the same. They're all nuanced. They generally come with, you know, completely opaque um, disclosure or, or access to information. And it's, um, it's an interesting space. Um, I'm I'm honestly surprised it's gone on this long um, because I didn't think there were enough names to really support enough volume, but it's, it's definitely bespoke trading for sure. Well, I think there's levels of like people don't have access to any of the financials. No one, ha- the seller doesn't have any kind of information rights and Pinterest is a phenomenon, you know? And so, you know, there were a lot of people that are just willing to get into a phenomenon like Facebook, Pinterest, Tesla, 
before they list. Whereas I think there's a big opportunity for people that are not just some broker dealer out of Chicago, but people who really know what's going on in the Valley that can get into secondaries when they make sense. But, Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about, and, and I'll say one last thing, like advice to entrepreneurs. I have a buddy who founded a company got close to an exit, moved to, to actually the Lake Tahoe where I am right now. Uh, but he was in an in incline village to be on the Nevada side because he doesn't want to pay tax on his big exit, which is a lock-in. The exit falls through. Years go by. He's now left the company and he tried to get me to help him do a secondary because his life was falling apart and he didn't have information rights. And it wasn't a phenomenon, Pinterest, but it's a damn good company. And there would have been buyers for it if I could have produced the financials and they'd price it. And the current board hates him now. And he was unable to do a secondary and he ended up getting divorced. And I know the whole family. And it's really tragic. Oh no. So, and then the exit came not that far after the divorce. And now he's loaded rich, but who wants to be rich and lose your family? You know what I mean? So secondary, it's a complex thing. So my advice to founders is, it's counterintuitive when you're the founder and you're doing your series A with benchmark or Jack Leaney here, but ask for permanent information rights. So even if you exit, you're in a position to do a secondary. Um, you know, you would never think of that when you're going up on your first or second round, but, but let's switch gears totally and not totally, totally and talk about SPACs. So a lot of people are talking about SPACs. It reminds me a bit of some of previous history, but Jack, can you explain for us what is a SPAC to begin with? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, happy to. So, uh, as I mentioned to you, I've been I'd served on, I have been serving on the board of a SPAC for the last year that uh, announced their business combination, and their uh, the SPAC is called PropTech Acquisition Corp, and they've merged with Porch.com, um, which has been a fascinating experience, really a front row seat to the whole product, and uh, and, and very educational because you know when I mentioned I started out. Um, you know, way, way back when at Morgan Stanley and in a capital markets capacity, SPACs were really rare and um, a bit of a kind of a niche product you, you never really heard about. You never heard of TPG and Apollo doing a SPAC, that's for sure. And that's the world we're living in now. I mean, SPACs now are half of all listings this year and 40% of all dollar volume this year in, in what has been a super, yeah. So the, uh, no, the secret's out. Um, there's about 35 billion of SPAC capital in search mode right now. So it's gotten incredibly active, and the um, there's a lot, a lot of acronyms, a lot of buzzwords. Um, sometimes they're called blank check companies. But the easy way I like to think about it or, or describe it to people is it's basically like taking a private equity fund public, going to public shareholders, raising money on a thesis, saying we you know we are Seven Global Capital, we invest in late stage internet businesses, and we want to raise a fund from public market investors purely under that thesis. So you kind of, you, you do that whole part first. Roadshow, the whole shebang, stock trades, has a ticker, quarterly filings. But all of the money you raise on the roadshow sits in, in a trust, sits in a bank account, and is essentially waiting there until you find a target. Now, the difference between private equity fund or a venture fund and a SPAC is with a SPAC, you're, you're really only looking for one asset. You, in theory, you could do a, a, a multiple asset combination or kind of a platform play. 
but the vast majority of SPACs, it's um, a merger with, with one business, a private business. And when the SPAC, which is really just an empty holding company with a bunch of cash, merges with private company XYZ, the SPAC structure essentially falls away. All the cash goes to the balance sheet of the target company, and that company becomes public um, almost in, in like a backdoor way. So, you know, publicly traded private equity fund is one way I think about it. You know, from a target company point of view, uh, the way we often describe it is a pre-sold IPO. So it's already gone public. It's already gotten the shareholders. It's articulated this thesis. You merge with it. The transaction looks and feels way more like an M&A transaction. It's privately negotiated. You come with, up, up with valuation in between two parties. You know, the board agrees. You know exactly where you stand. This is, you know, there's a lot of, a um, lot just being talked about and written about them these days. But uh, Bill Gurley had a great piece uh, actually advocating for the product, which was great to see after he's been such a champion of, of direct listings. Um, but, you know, the big advantage from a founder's point of view is a kind of, I think, a couple of, couple of uh, ways to look at it. First and foremost, you can do a SPAC IPO in two months. Um, and that's through, you know, provided accounting diligence goes smoothly, like public company accounting diligence, which is quite the X-ray, uh, and also SEC review. But from, from getting to a deal, negotiated, board approved, and actually trading, you can be as quick as two months. Um, anyone who's been through the traditional investment banking process from, from pitching them or, or the other way around, I mean, we all know this is a year uh, in, in the kind of best case scenario, good market conditions. So speed is definitely there. And, and look, the second most important thing, um, there's obviously been a lot of discussion around mispricing or underpricing IPOs, tons of money left on the table, all these big stock pops, you know, Snowflake and Zoom and um, lots of them um, is you can control your own destiny here. You know, this isn't an agented transaction by Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. This is a principally negotiated transaction, target company and sponsored, um, you know, private equity SPAC. Um, so, where the stock ultimately trades and how it moves is, you know, really you've, you've determined your own fate. Um, it's not a book build on the last day. Uh, the, when the businesses combine, the market cap has been predetermined and set. And look, the market will, will determine if you were right or wrong, obviously. Um, once, once the stock's out there and, and, you know, research picks up and there's volume traded, et cetera. Um, but it's, look, I could go on and on at some of the nuances of the product, but it's, uh, it's incredibly interesting. And frankly, I understand why it's gotten so popular. I'm a bit biased. I'm a bit, bit close to it. Um, but the interesting thing is what we're seeing right now is my, my opinion is the venture ecosystem is a bit late to the party or, or kind of just coming online. Um, you know, the vast, vast majority of SPACs on the road right now are being run by uh, middle market private equity sponsors, uh, individuals who've had you know, really, really illustrious operating careers, but but they're in all sorts of different sectors that are non-IT. You know, it's financial services, real estate, <coughs> um, industrials, uh, really, you know, more the value-oriented side of the market, I would say. And it's been very exciting to see now that, you know, the light has gone off on, on Sand Hill Road a bit, and there are more and more venture firm-led, growth firm-led SPACs going out and filing and also more and more venture backed targets going public through SPACs. So right. I think it'll be interesting. And I think it's something that's been necessary 
uh, as uh, in the wake of what's been just total total madness in late stage private markets for the last five plus years. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look historically, what's happened is we had a the late '90s with the dot com boom and the golden telecom days, where anybody was going public before they had revenue or revenue model. Like they were sure. talking about what eyeballs or what was the term people were using for you know page views, but um, mm-hmm. and then that crashed. And that crash was so severe, we got Sarbanes-Oxley. And then we went through this really ice age of nobody going public. The four horsemen like H&Q and Montgomery Securities got bought up and ruined as they got the, the good people left and they just got sucked into Chase and big banks. And so we lost the kind of IPO machine of the venture capital asset class, you know, giving birth to really great entrepreneurs. And then... It, you know, and then we kind of see big IPOs come, but the threshold for the IPOs of, and I want to talk about what is kind of top line revenue got to be? Is there any, you probably don't need profitability or what are the metrics of what you got to get away? Because it kind of got to the point that no one would IPO you for less than 250 million top line sales with like your Goldman, JP Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley. And then the other thing is like Tim Draper was complaining that the, the, the initial cost of an IPO is $6 million and the cost of annual compliance post Sarbanes-Oxley was around $6 million. So those economics are not going to be justified if you're not of a certain size. So what is the cost of doing a SPAC? Two months is an amazing timeline. So that's cool. What's the total expense of doing it? And what are the general criteria that the gatekeepers, as they, as it were, impose on you to be able to get one away? It's a great question. It's a great question. And look, I think it speaks to the opportunity. So right now, the median market cap for tech IPOs is around $3.8 billion. Um, If you were talking about back in, um, not, not even the late 90s, just 10 years ago, you know, the median market cap for stuff that got out in tech, and, you know, this is assuming growth tech, you know, attractive kind of internet software companies, um, that median market cap was 450 million. So what's happened to small and mid cap names? You know, it, it's kind of crazy to think um, portfolio managers at, at mutual funds or hedge funds aren't interested in smaller high growth stories. It's crazy because we've seen them drift into private markets to get their hands on them. Um, and that's really where the gap is. And I think the bar for a traditional quote unquote high quality IPO has just gotten way too out of reach. And there's this giant gap in the market uh, for these smaller mid cap names by public market standards. Um, and, and it's been completely uh, replaced by, by private capital. You know, the number of unicorns in this time period, it's, it's just literally one is flipped from the other. It, it's a zero sum game. And all it's turned into is uh, lack of liquidity and kind of also lack yeah. of access for a currency. I mean, a million reasons why you'd want to be public. Um, but anywho, look, to your point or to your question, what, what does it take? I think there's, look, my sense is there's, it's a hard to put black and white figures on it, but there is a uh, kind of tangible scale number of, you know, what's, what's predictable and scalable revenue. And um, I think in tech and IT, you're, you're seeing companies between 50 and 100 million do SPAC IPOs. Um, I think there are companies with strong fundamentals below the top line, um, you know, very different bar of quality or, you know, growth versus sustainability uh, required with, with a public market investor. But 
um, you know, w without a doubt, companies with, with strong margins and, you know, call it 75 million revenue line and a good growth story. And look, I think, you know, look across public multiples and these could be companies, internet companies that have been public for, for 20 years or, or even some of the more recent darlings, you know, growth, 20% growth year over year is, is compelling for a public market company, especially yeah, a large scale that's public like, market company. I mean, not every one of our companies is doing that, but that's below average for us, you know? That oh, yeah. No, I mean, it, we're, you know, we're, some of them didn't do so well in COVID and some have gone nuts with COVID with, you know, 100% year on year growth, right? Without a doubt, without a doubt. And I think coming from a venture mindset, you're, you're so used to swinging for the fences and 2x performance year over year or 3x. Um, you know, that's not reality. That's, that's reality to get something to a scale. And then it's kind of growth at a reasonable price or sustainability. And can you uh, create this strange thing called net income? Um, <laughs> so this, this, I think, you know, where the SPAC is able to normalize all these things is, look, the snowflakes and the unities of the world are always going to have basically all the options on the table. And um, if they'll, you know, want to continue working with uh, some of the most prestigious investment banks and they'll have insatiable market demands just because the asset quality is so high. Start to think downstream a bit. W what about companies that have 100 million paid in capital? They've been around for 10 years. There's a good scale business there, call it 100 million, 120 million in revenue. And it's just no longer the shiniest penny anymore. And uh, maybe the investors have said, look, we're not going to keep piling money into this. Get yourselves to profitability or be able to kind of control your own destiny. Um, and, you know, that, that's a great asset. And it's probably got an incredibly sticky customer base and it's probably got great market positioning and public market investors have no access to a company yeah. like that as a result yeah. of the dislocation of the last, you know, five, 10 years. So in my mind, this is where SPAC is the solution. You know, you can do a direct deal with the sponsor. It looks and feels like a private equity M&A transaction. Ipso facto, you get a huge financing to your benefit. And now you're a public company with, with access to currency. And I think this is uh, really a result of sort of what's, what's happened in the last five, 10 years with um, just exuberance in, in private markets. I think it all ties together with, you know, the, the market crashes and the rise of the secondary market. I remember when it was quite a few years ago, but when Lyft did like a $350 million financing that might've even blown up to 600, I can't remember. And you saw Carl Icahn and Fidelity plowing yep. heavy money into that. And that was a signal to me of, all right, so there's so much stay private longer, stay private forever, plenty of secondary money around. Who even wants to go uh, public became fashionable. And so these kind of public IPO people that have acts, maybe unfair access to the initial public offering before mom and dad kind of get in there, um, they weren't getting the bump anymore at the IPO. So they realized we've got to come in lower. And in my early days as an entrepreneur, 350 million market cap on the NASDAQ was a victory. Where now it's like, sure, totally. you know, young people in bars in San Francisco are not impressed that you're not a unicorn and you're still privately held. So I think it's good to have a return to having a currency, being able to benefit from buying a company that makes sense. And it's like a a creative free acquisition and all that stuff that you don't get as much on the stay private forever thing. So, okay. So listen, um, that's cool. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe come back in six months and see what people are saying about SPACs, um, you sure. know, you know, in there, but so I want to, I want to make sure we don't uh, miss out on what you're doing now. So when did you start 
raising seven global capital, seven GC, and what was the initial thesis and how have you evolved with your kind of fundraising trail? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, we got going, uh, this was a, a bit of a, a conspiracy, or at least we quit our jobs just about um, like exactly four years ago. So it was the end of 2016 and we had this idea and, you know, my partner at Seven Global spent uh, like 15 years at KKR and he's based in Germany. He was between Germany and London. And the point being effectively a European perspective, um, but also fascinated with accessing, you know, really the best quality technology businesses in the world, which which really, you know, the, I think the U.S. still has a bit of a stranglehold on that space, if you look at it from a growth and liquidity point of view. And so, you know, he was looking from that way in. Um, I was looking at it from a bit of another perspective where I was running money for a European company, uh, investing in the U.S., but leveraging that international reach and really the strategic capability of Telefonica, um, which frankly, you know, in a very competitive market, I thought was a huge edge to, to be able to say to, you know, growth company XYZ, uh, you know, we can open up big sales channels for you in the UK, Germany, Spain, et cetera. Yeah, and so, Telefonica you know, the, is number the, one, two, or three on mobile as an MNO in 23 countries, I think, right? I mean, that's a monster. Ab yeah, ab absolutely. If the internet's on the absolutely. mobile phone, you know, that's got to be a good move if you can get them to actually do something. Yeah. I mean, Telefonica had about, I hope my numbers aren't stale, but they had three times the subscriber base of AT&T uh, globally across the world. Now, different customer mix and different products, but, but still the reach was massive. So just, just I think the, the light bulb moment for me was be, being in the Valley, meeting companies, being able to have you know, that behemoth behind you and uh, the capability of, of distribution and a sales platform was super powerful. And then my business partner kind of looking at it from the other direction saying, you know, how can we think about some of the best industrial partners in Europe and use this as a way to really crack open Silicon Valley? Because, you know, the reality is you can scale in the U.S. for, for quite some time without having to think about international. Um, and then, you know, this is the easiest market to raise capital in, uh, easiest to get large reference customers or a big consumer audience. You can do a lot of things in the U.S. where there's an advantage or, or you know, a lack of a necessity for U.S. companies to think outside of these four walls initially. So long story short, um, the thesis we came up with was, was basically to do a bit of both. Um, so we're investing in, in mid-stage venture-backed companies here. You know, it, it's growth. It's, everyone has their own definition. It's really kind of B's and C's and D's for us. Um, and looking at companies that have basically you know, justified themselves from a financial point of view. They are very, very high growth, but there's real, you know, multi-million, tens, tens, 20, 30 million revenue levels there. And what we're really saying is, you know, can these, can these businesses not only lead their space or lead their category or define some very, very large category and win share, but could they also work international and could they win international? And then that is the entire dialogue we, we have with founders. So, you know, the, the strategy we raised around the fund was, effectively all U.S. investing, some international when there's compelling cases. Um, and then our LP base is entirely European. And they're all what I describe as uh, strategic in nature. Majority of them, very, very large scale families, private families, um, but families ultimately that own multi-billion dollar enterprises across industry. Um, there's some corporate LPs, but uh, they're a bit smaller on the laundry list. Um, but, but also, look, it's all it's all additive to the thesis. Wasn't ProZeban Pro there from the beginning? And wasn't that the, the seven is the Zeban? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so ProZeban was an, an early partner in the fund. 
and uh, actually, there's quite a long, long-standing relationship there. Even with, ultimately, the, the strategy of the fund and with the portfolio companies is, is all of our LPs can be their uh, partners for internationalization in Europe. So they really reach across uh, continental Europe, touch a variety of sectors. You know, we mentioned ProSeban and the media footprint, but we have folks who are in shipping and logistics, in pharmaceuticals, in real estate, industrials and chemicals. It, it really is, frankly, everything non-digital. And that, that's ultimately our strategy. So we've now, uh, we've been, we raised the first funds. We're, we're sort of just under a hundred million under management and we're getting to the point where we've almost deployed it all. So we're have to think about it all over again, as well as some other interesting <laughs> projects we're cooking up. Yeah, well, well, hopefully all of these LPs realize that tech is touching every business out there. And if they don't begin to digitize themselves and automate and bring AI into their business and perform functions better than the human could do that they could be left behind. And maybe that relationship with you can pair the startups with them and um, they'll keep re-upping and uh, you'll be blazing out of fun tune out of fun too sometime next year. Well, knock on wood, knock on wood. No, but, but without a doubt. I mean, as you said, look, that's everyone is obviously invested for, um, you know, financially incentivized. And, and that's, that's why we're all, all doing this ultimately. Um, but I think, you know, what, what we've found is there's a, huge appetite and curiosity and necessity to have a more uh, ingrained introduction and relationship with, with, you know, digitally native businesses if you're coming from a completely offline sector. And it's, uh, you know, it's not surprising that it's something everyone thinks about and uh, everyone wants more direct connectivity to the Valley. Yeah. Listen, you know, preaching to the choir here, my old friend, I mean, I couldn't agree more that these large corps should use venture capital as a weapon to get business intelligence. And then you know them and you can find suitable startup partners to bring to them and help them survive and benefit. Um, and maybe on closing. So you early on you guys made some fund to fund investments too. So it was fund to funds, cherry pick some secondaries, get on the cap table. How did that come together with the investing in funds and direct into startups? Yeah, it's look, Andrew. It's it's opportunistic, and again, I think we'd like to be a bit contrarian with with some of these things as far as the the structure. Um, we we had a unique opportunity to pick up a couple of LP assets in really top quartile, early stage, fantastic guys. Part of our thesis was, you know, a small bet here in amazingly performing managers is a differentiated growth funnel. Um, and that's played out a bit. And then, you know, mostly we do sort of direct growth down the fairway. I mean, we'll, we'll look at things from a few different angles, but the thought is, um, you know, the only way to really generate high DPI and kind of outsized performance is with a relatively concentrated portfolio. And I, you know, if the asset quality is extremely high, I don't really care if we're going through the front door, the back door, the side door, yeah, um, yeah. whatever works uh, to kind of get to that point of view is how we've approached it. Sounds good, my man. Well, listen, great to see you over the uh, Zoom here. Hope to see you in the real world soon. And uh, I'll, t I'll talk to you privately very soon. So take care, my friend. Thanks for joining. Likewise. Andrew, thanks so much. Great to chat. Okay. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye.